Hey everybody, welcome to Money's No Object. I'm your host, Dylan Howell. This is episode number 107 of our YouTube channel and podcast, and I cannot be more excited to continue sharing with you guys personal finance topics that I think could really help you in your long-term financial journey. Today, what we are going to talk about is evaluating your investments at year-end, evaluating your investment performance, understanding what your investments have done, and then determining if you need to make any changes. Uh, Because the end of the year is so, so important uh, to go ahead and look back, and it's an easy benchmark by which to look back at the year past and go, did my investments meet my expectations? Have they been meeting my expectations? And should I do anything about it? So that's what we're going to cover in today's episode. Before we get started, though, if you could go down below, hit the big red subscribe button, like this video, leave any feedback or questions that you may have in the comments down below as we go throughout this episode. If you're listening on Apple or Spotify podcast, then make sure that you subscribe there and leave me a review, hopefully a good review. If you're not already, then go ahead and follow me on all the major social media sites at MNO with Dylan, and that's really good supplementary materials to the things I'm putting out daily in these long form episodes. And then, if you need somebody to help you walk through your financial life, you need somebody to help you create a plan that works for you and your family, then I can help you do that. Just go to my website, www.mnowithdylan.com, click on the Work with Dylan tab. And then you can choose the financial coaching session type that would work best for you, and we can begin pushing towards your long-term financial goals. So the end of the year is here. The end of the year is right around the corner, just a couple days until 2021. I know a lot of us can breathe a sigh of relief that this year is over, Uh, and then many of us have also had uh, pretty good years in 2020. I mean, I have actually kicked off this YouTube channel and podcast in 2020. So hopefully this is helping you guys out. That is my wish. And hopefully I can uh, continue to help you guys out as we move forward. But uh, nonetheless, with this year coming to an end, there are a lot of things financially that you need to look at. There's a lot of things financially that you need to pay attention to. Uh, And one of those Very soon, you'll be able to see your end of year and the entire year of 2020 uh, financial statements, the the statements uh, from your investment company that they will send to you uh, that tell you how you did this year and tell you uh, what the value of your account was at the beginning of the year and the value of your accounts at the end of the year and the transactions that went on during the year and the tax liability that you may have and all these different things, right? And so when you receive these, Uh, I have recognized that over time, what ends up happening is that when people receive their statements, that is when they are most likely to act. And in many cases, that's when they are most likely to act irrationally uh, because somebody may see some type of loss, some type of tax liability, something on their statement, and they haven't been paying attention to their investments very closely. And they don't know why that loss is there, why that tax implication is there. Uh, and so they have an issue. And so they'll you know, call their advisor if they have an advisor. What's the deal with this? Why this? Why that? And they're frustrated and all these types of things. Uh, but this does not need to be you. You do not need to be asleep at the wheel when it comes to your investments. You need to understand what's going on. And you need to really ponder why things look the way they do before you ever go and attack somebody who may not have anything to do uh, with the reason that you are frustrated. Okay, Um, so if you do work with an advisor, you should obviously ask them for help and understanding what's going on, uh, but don't get in anybody's throat. But if you are doing this by yourself, 
all the more reason to understand, all the more reason to understand every single line of your investment statements, all the more reason to look at those investment statements and be able to determine what things mean, to be able to determine if you need to do something based on what this statement says and be able to move forward uh, with a lot of confidence in your investing into the year of 2021. And so one of the big things that a lot of people want to look at uh, when they get their you know final statements for the year is they want to go, well, how much money did I make? Or what percentage did I make this year? What was my return, right? And return is something that gets a lot of people in trouble when it comes to investing. Because either uh, they overestimate what their return should be, uh, or they have unreal expectations as to what those returns should be, or they're not benchmarking correctly to some type of index that is similar to the portfolio that they are actually invested in. Uh, or something of the like. There are unrealistic expectations. Uh, there's not good benchmarking. And then people look at their returns and wonder, well, you know, why did my friend make a better return than me? Why did you know, so-and-so make a better return than me? I don't want these investments anymore. I don't like this. All, the, all these types of things. People love returns. And too many uh, advisors and too many companies that sell investments get into this idea of, we've got to create return, we've got to create return, we've got to create return, or else people are going to sell their investments and all these types of things. Because people have short-term mindsets. People don't understand where these returns are coming from. They don't understand uh, why they get the returns that they do based on the things that they are invested in. And that is an issue. That's a problem. But as I've told you guys before, understanding everything that you're investing in can be a huge upside for you. It can be a huge advantage because if you understand what you're invested in, then you should understand why you got the type of return that you did. So uh, let's just talk about for a second, how should we be looking at the performance of our portfolio at year end? So there's a couple things you want to look at. First, you want to look at your absolute return or your total return. What was your return this year? Okay, and obviously this is the number that most people look at, but this does need to be the first thing that you need to see. You need to see what percentage gain did you make, what dollar amount gain did you make, and you simply just need to know what was your gain for the year. And what you'll be able to take into account with this total return is how much income you received that year, meaning dividends or interest off of bonds, things like that, and then what was the capital gain for the year, how much did your investments increase in value, increase in price over the course of that year. And within this total return, uh, people think that is all there is. They think, oh, well, we shouldn't take anything else into account. Well, what a lot of people don't know is when they look at their, their investment statements, that within that total return, what are also taken into account are fees, because fees do come out of your investments throughout the year. And so that's why looking at a total return uh, can be a little bit tricky and you need to know if your total return is net of fees or gross of fees. You need to know gross returns and net returns. So that's a, a first thing that you need to understand. Gross returns typically look really pretty. Uh, gross returns may really, really look good and may really, really make you want to invest in something. But net returns are what you need to pay attention to. Net returns are the actual returns that you are making. Um, and now I'm just saying here, net of fees. There are other things to be net of, which we will get to here shortly. Uh, but being net of fees, you need to understand what that is. Because making 10.5% per year on an equity fund is you know not a bad return at all. But if you make 10.5% per year, and you're charging a 1.5% fee, 
you know, because an investor may be working with an advisor uh, or may have a mutual fund or group of mutual funds with higher uh, costs associated with those funds. And we've talked about that previously about mutual fund costs. Uh, and if those things are higher, if you pay one and a half percent a year on a ten and a half percent annual gain of a mutual fund, then you're really only netting the nine percent. And so it's not as good as you think it is. It's not as great or on an even you know, lower scale than that. If you're making nine and a half percent gross on a mutual fund, which looks good, uh, then if you pay the one and a half percent a year, then you're only making eight percent per year on that mutual fund. So it's important to understand what your costs are, what the net returns after fees are. And then determine if those particular net returns are what's stated in your total return for the year or not. Now, keeping in line with understanding net returns, you also need to take into account a couple of things. One, the tax liability for the year. Tax liability is a huge deal. Why is it a huge deal? Because, and I talked about this a bit in yesterday's episode, that if you are uh, looking at a situation where you have made a particular capital gain over the course of a year or uh, a long-term capital gain over the course of several years, multiple years, whatever it may be, uh, then if you are making these capital gains and realizing these capital gains, then you are creating a tax liability for yourself. So let's just use an example that is similar to one I used yesterday. Let's say you buy a stock for $100 January 1st and you've held it till today. You end up selling it for a 10% gain, so a $10 gain. Well, you've made 10% on that particular stock, but your capital gain, right, is $10 and it is going to be a short-term capital gain. And let's say you're at the 25% federal tax bracket. Well, then you're only going to get to keep seven and a half percent of that 10% gain because you're going to give 25% back to the federal government. Okay. So seeing that you made a 10% gain looks awesome, but given the fact that it is a short-term capital gain, then you're going to end with only a $7 and 50 cent gain. And that can be problematic if you're only looking at gross returns, if you're only looking at how much something went up in value and saying, oh, I made 10%. No, you didn't. You made 7.5% because that other 2.5% flew out the window to the federal government. So that can be a problem. Now, let's say even for long-term capital gains, right? Let's say for a longer-term capital gain, you've held something from January of 2019 to today and you made $10 on that. You made 10% on that. Well, then what ends up happening is, let's say you make you know $120,000 a year as a household and you are in the 15% of long-term capital gains rate because you held this for over a year. So you paid the long-term capital gains rate. Well, what ends up happening is you would pay 15% of that 10% gain to the federal government in taxes because it is a long-term realized capital gain. And so you only get to keep eight and a half of that 10. And so again, 10 looked good, but you only get to keep eight and a half. So let's say you have fees that you have to pay and you have taxes that you have to pay. You need to know after both of those things are taken out of your account, what are your net net returns? What are the bottom line returns? What is the amount that you actually made uh, after your taxes are paid. Now, the problem is, is that your investment statements aren't going to tell you that. And the reason that they're not going to tell you that is because that money is still in the account. So that gain is still there. That 
tax liability is going to come out of your pocket. This is a calculation that you are going to have to do for yourself. This is something that you are going to have to determine. What is my tax liability? Now, the investment statements may tell you what your realized capital gains are for a year or your long-term capital gains that are realized. And you can do some really quick math, determine what your tax liability is going to be, take that out of what your dollar amount of investment returns was. And then you can do a little quick division, determine what your rate of return for that year was. And so that can be pretty simple, uh, but you do have to do a little bit of math there to determine what your net net returns are. And if you're not taking taxes into account, uh, then you're completely missing the boat. Because like I said, with these short-term capital gains, 10%, 15%, whatever it may be, looks extremely, extremely good. But if you are failing to take into account these costs that are inherent to this taxable investing, uh, then you may be in a tough place. But you can cut out a lot of this particular tax implication if what you have uh, are retirement accounts or tax-advantaged investment accounts like we have talked about previously. If you have IRAs, 401ks, Roth IRAs, uh, 457s, you know, 529s for your kids, things like that. Those things have tax advantages to where if you buy and sell within them, then there's not going to be a tax implication there. Uh, so just keep that in mind uh, when you are looking at your investment performance because taxes have to be taken into account. And if they aren't, uh, then you are missing a potentially large cost that can uh, make you think that you're doing a lot better than you actually are with your investments. Now, another problem that I see, and I see this far, far, far too often, uh, is people want to make the best returns that they can. And they don't understand the risk-return trade-off, which we have talked about previously, this relationship between risk and return, how more risk typically leads to more return over the long term. And so this risk-return trade-off is something that um, is just a basic financial principle, but a lot of individuals who invest, they want the best returns they can get. But the problem is they want to take the least risk that they can take. And these things are not synonymous. High returns and low risk are not very synonymous. And so the problem is that people want these S&P 500 returns, and yet they want the risk of a 50-50 portfolio. And so that is not going to work out. When I say 50-50, I'm talking about 50% stock, 50% bond portfolio. Well, that does not work out. That doesn't work out well. And what they'll end up doing is they'll talk to their friends or talk to their buddies and you know see people who have you know just owned the S&P 500, just owned index funds and go, well, how did they make those returns? And I only made this return this year. You know, tell me what happened, what happened, what happened? Well, what happened was you didn't take the risk that they did. You didn't have the risk profile that they had. Um, and so this all really comes down to appropriate benchmarking. Now, I know a lot of people use the S&P 500 as a benchmark. A lot of people use the Dow Jones as a benchmark. Some people use the NASDAQ as a benchmark. But this is not correct if your portfolio doesn't look a lot like the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or the Dow, right? You need to take into account what your portfolio looks like before knowing what benchmark to use for your portfolio. So let's say, for instance, you're an individual who has an 80% stock portfolio and a 20% bond portfolio. Well, you shouldn't be looking right at the S&P for your benchmark. You should be looking at an 80% stock, 20% bond portfolio. And so there's a real simple thing you can do. Uh, I like to use Yahoo Finance. Yahoo Finance has the historical prices and you can pull them onto an Excel sheet and you can do it just for a year if that's what you want to do it or you can do it longer than that. Uh, but you can take something like 
the S&P 500, right? And take that return for the year and weight it 80%. So multiply it by 0.8, right? And then you can pull a full bond portfolio. So uh, something like, you know, depending on the type of bonds that you hold, but maybe you hold some intermediate term bonds. So you may say, okay, intermediate term uh, Barclays bond ETF for a mutual fund or whatever it may be. And you can find an index that will track that type of bond market as well. And you can take that return for the year, multiply it by 0.2. So you're just doing nothing more than taking a weighted average. So uh, the S&P return times 0.8 plus the bond fund return times 0.2. And you add those together. And that will give you a potential benchmark as to what you should be actually looking at with an 80-20 portfolio. And you can do that with any number of uh, different portfolio allocations, whether it be, you know, that 80, 20, or whether it be, you know, 30, 70 or whatever, anything in between anything, uh, from zero to a hundred on either one of those. And then making sure that within your allocations, that, uh, your equity portion looks like the S and P 500 or that your bond portion looks like the bond index that you are using. Uh, because if you're holding a lot of small cap stocks and, um, a lot of technology firms and things like that, then the S&P 500 might not be what you want to look for. You might want to look at something like the NASDAQ or some other type of small cap index. Or if you're invested in a you know, junk bond ETF or uh, you know, those longer term bond ETFs, then using a treasury bond index may not be what you need to look at. You, you need to look at something that is similar. You need to look at something that is holding the same type of assets that you are holding and create a benchmark based on that. And there are a lot of benchmarks out there that are already created for things like this that you can go and look at. And again, just do those simple weighted averages to determine what your return should be. And then compare your returns to that. And then if you are far underperforming that thing, uh, then you may need to make some changes. You, ne you may need to do some things with your portfolio. Uh, but let's say you're far outperforming that. Well, then you have to ask yourself, okay, why am I far outperforming? And then if you are far outperforming, then you may also need to ask yourself, uh, did I benchmark correctly? Did I benchmark to the correct thing? Uh, so it's not as directly straightforward as saying, you know, did I beat the S&P 500 or not? Uh, because your portfolio may look like the S&P 500. And a lot of people, a lot of you out there, I've told you the impact of index investing and how awesome index investing is over the long term. And so if you are you know, buying the S&P 500 index all of the time, then sure, use the S&P 500 as your benchmark. But if you are not, if you're buying something else that doesn't look like the S&P 500 or a mutual fund that holds smaller cap stocks or mid cap stocks um, or is a balanced mutual fund where it holds stocks and bonds, things like that, you don't need to be using the S&P as your benchmark. You need to be using some other benchmark that is more indicative of what you actually hold in your portfolio. And you also need to not listen to your friends when you're evaluating your investment performance because uh, your friends and what they've done with their investments, first of all, they might be lying to you, okay? They want to make their investments sound as good as possible. They might be lying to you, one. Two, they may not have any particular strategy and got lucky and did you know something good and they want to brag about it uh, and that makes your returns not sound very good. So that could be the case as well. And then three, uh, your friends are not you. Your friends don't have the same risk profile that you have. Your friends uh, don't look for the same returns that you look at. They don't look at the same companies and the same ETFs and mutual funds that you look at. 
everybody is slightly different. We can't just you know put everybody in one box and say everybody needs to do this. What can I say? I can say that if everybody were to index, right? If everybody were to uh, invest in index funds, then long-term returns would be good. Long-term returns would be satisfactory. But the problem is, is that the risk profile of individuals doesn't always meet the risk profile of the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or the Dow or whatever index we're trying to track. And so we can't all invest in the same things. And if we are, then that is a problem. And then along the same line, what you need to understand as well is if you are having actively managed investments versus passively managed investments, then the the returns are going to look different. And the amount that those returns differ from your benchmark is going to be far different. An actively managed portfolio can overperform by a lot or underperform by a lot in a given year. But a passively managed portfolio is likely going to keep with, with whatever benchmark or index is set for that particularly passive managed fund or uh, that passively managed ETF, whatever it may be. Now that brings into question then how can I make a determination uh, based on whatever type of strategy I'm looking at, when to move on or when to pick something different because what is happening is not actually working. Now, I'll say this, with passive portfolios, it's far easier, right? It's far easier to determine, are you keeping up or not? Because you can just look at your benchmark and say, well, am I keeping up? If I'm keeping up, good. If I'm not, bad, move to something different, right? Makes a little more sense in that particular way. But with actively managed funds and actively managed portfolios, then it's much, much more difficult to tell uh, when you should move on and when you should not. Uh, that's why these are very, very difficult because you'll look and you'll go, oh, well, we beat the S&P by, you know, 40% last year. But then you might trail the S&P by 10% the next year. You may trail your benchmark by 10% the next year. And then your returns don't look as good as they once looked. So you need to look at things more in aggregate with these actively managed portfolios. I'm not a huge fan of actively managed portfolios unless you are doing it yourself, unless you are buying particular shares of stock yourself or choosing to sell particular shares of stock yourself. Because we know, and this is directly from John Bogle's book, uh, The Little Book of Common Sense Investing, that active management underperforms passive indexing 78% of the time. And so they are typically going to underperform your passive counterparts. And so I'm not a big fan of active investing. I am a, a fan of picking investments that you like and investments that um, are undervalued and have the ability to grow well over the long term uh, and invest in stocks or bonds or things like that. Uh, but I am also a huge fan of the passive strategy. I believe that passive strategies uh, one, it, like I just said, it's a lot easier to determine if you're doing well or not. Uh, and then again, it is also going to return you what the market returns you. It's going to uh, guarantee that if the market has a 12% year and you own the market, right? If the S&P has a 12% year and you own the S&P, then you had a 12% year. Uh, if the S&P is down by 20% in a year, then guess what? You're going to be down 20% for that year. Uh, so this is a clearer picture uh, of what investment returns should be and what they will be, uh, whereas active management really makes you struggle to determine if you're doing well or not over the long term. Now, regardless of the type of investments you hold, I am not a fan of making determinations over the short term. I'm not a fan of looking at one year of performance and going, that just didn't work out. I don't like it. Move on. Okay. I, like I said, with passive funds, it's a little bit different because um, you know, if they're not doing what their benchmark is doing, 
then something is inherently wrong and you may need to move off of that particular passive fund. Uh, but with any other type of active investing, um, you know, I don't like looking at a year worth of returns and going, I don't like that. I don't like looking at two years, three years, four years of returns and going, I don't like that. But if they are consistently underperforming a bitch mark, if they are consistently not providing what you expected, then it may be time to move on. And maybe your risk profile is not what you thought it was when you're investing in this thing. Maybe something is far more volatile than you wanted it to be. Maybe something um, is far less volatile than you wanted it to be or providing far less returns than you wanted it to. Uh, and so you may need to make those changes over time, but not all at once. Don't just make the changes because of a year. Uh, years come and go. Years fluctuate. Short-term things fluctuate. I mean, Look, in March, people were telling me that the market is going to go to zero. People were telling me that the market is is never coming back. Well, I bought in March. I bought things at the bottom and, you know, up 70% from things at the bottom. And for some things, even more than 70% from the bottom. So I don't buy into this notion uh, that we should be making short-term decisions because we should not. We should make long-term decisions because if you are listening to this and you believe what I believe, we are long-term investors. We aren't investing for this year or next year or five years from now. We're investing for you know 15 years from now, 20 years from now, 30, 40, 50 years from now. And in doing so, we need to make decisions that are going to create long-term value then. And we don't want to be people who said, oh, well, I made a horrible decision by selling that because I didn't, you know, stick with it. I didn't stick with my philosophy. We need to be mentally strong. We need to have that fortitude within us to say, okay, just because something had one bad year doesn't mean that I'm going to scrap it. And some people actually just do this with indexes or, you know, mutual funds that track a particular index or, or mutual funds that are very similar to a particular index. They'll just say, oh, since this thing had a bad year, I need to be put in something else. Well, that doesn't make any sense either. Why, why in the world would you do that? Because you're going to get put into something else that is probably going to lag that index as well. Because if you don't like the volatility of that index, uh, that may be a perfectly correct thing to do. It may be perfectly correct to get into something that fits your risk profile. It absolutely has to if we're doing a good job of investment allocation. Uh, but if something doesn't meet your risk profile, uh, then you have to be clear about that up front. But if something just underperforms for a year, your expectations... Uh, then you can't just jump out because what happens far too often is that somebody will see, oh, the the market had a really good year. Put me all in the S and P 500, all in, you know, these large cap mutual funds, these risky, risky, risky. But then something gets volatile. You know, the market drops a lot. We have a march, and then people are asking you to sell and they're asking to, you know, get out of those particular positions. Well, in doing that, then all you're doing is missing out on gains, and all you're doing is looking at the short term and what happens. Forget the short term. If you're not investing for five plus years into the future, then you are not investing. You are speculating. And we don't want to be speculators. We want to be investors. And we want to be good investors that understand what performance means and what good performance is and how to evaluate our performance over the long term. And so I hope that I've helped you guys to understand that today. I know there's some things that I did not talk about specifically in today's episode, uh, but hopefully the overall view of what I have given you here can help you to look at those end of year investment statements and make the best decisions. Look at those end of year 
investment statements and say, okay, what's really going on? Do I need to make any tweaks? Do I need to you know, keep an eye on this? Am I keeping up with my benchmark? Is my benchmark even correct? Uh, am I paying too much in fees? What are taxes going to do to me? All of these types of things. Hopefully you can take these things into account and be the best investor for the long term that you possibly can. So thank you guys for tuning into this episode. If you could go down below, hit the big red subscribe button, like this video, leave me any feedback or questions that you have in the comments down below, and I'll be sure to get back to you. Uh, if you are listening on Apple or Spotify podcast, then make sure that you subscribe and leave me a review on either one of those platforms. Follow me on social media at MNO with Dylan, and that's good supplementary material to these long form podcasts and YouTube episodes that I'm putting out daily. And then if you need somebody to help you walk through your financial life, somebody to help you to create a financial plan that is specific to you and your family, then I can help you do that. Just go to my website, www.mnowithdylan.com. Click on the work with Dylan tab and then choose the financial coaching session type that would work best for you. And we can begin pushing towards your long-term financial goals. So tune in tomorrow as I continue on this idea of it being the end of the year and things that we need to look at and understand at the end of the year. And tomorrow we are going to talk about your net worth statement. And we'll really dig into what that is and how to compile one uh, in tomorrow's episode. So thanks for tuning into this episode of Money's No Object. I'm your host, Dylan Howe. God bless.